you want to turn in the book of Joshua, we are going to go through seven chapters today. Joshua 13 through 19. I hope you read quickly. So, they, uh, before we get there, Tom, who's making you read this fat book here? Tom's taking my worship class uh, next month. So all the reading has to be done in advance. All right. Well, uh, obviously I'm not going to read seven chapters right now, so let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it now more than ever. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, today we come to a story of the land being distributed, and it's a story we're not much interested in. It calls into question our love for your word, and we don't really care. So we pray that we would pay attention to the details, that we learn its lessons about trusting in the promises of God and find the one who is our inheritance. Thank you that today we're learning once again from Joshua. Help us to hear his words, understand them, believe them, and obey them, being strong and courageous, careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And so we pray, speak through Joshua this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. If there's anything universally true about human experience, it's the deep desire for security and stability and hope. It is hard to live without hope. That hope may be uh, temporary, like a person who perseveres through a tough project at work because they anticipate a vacation at the beach. Or it could be something more enduring, like the hope of having a family or getting an education or starting a career. In either case, hope keeps us looking forward and moving towards the future. The opposite of hope is despair. And that can be seen in the vacant eyes of those who see no reason for tomorrow. Much of the despair in today's world, not all of it, but a lot of it, comes from a sense of rootlessness. If you want to shake up the security and stability of a person's life, let her lose a family member or give him no place to live. Let every day be uncertain. Without roots, without family, a person soon loses any sense of belonging and therefore any sense of hope. And yet the desire for hope and security extend far beyond this life. We want to know that we'll be secure for all eternity. We want to have the assurance that uh, when we die, we'll go to heaven and everything will be made right. How can we know that we'll be safe and secure for all eternity? How can we know? God has his ways of letting us know, and they're not always the ways that we would think. He gives us means by which he leads us into the assurance of everlasting life. And that's exactly what he's doing in these seven chapters He's doing for Israel what he'll eventually do for us. He's giving his chosen people the promised land 
as their inheritance. And of course, that was then, but now he's giving us, his chosen people, the promised land, new heaven and new earth, as our inheritance. Now, if you think back to biblical history, for over 400 years, the Israelites have been a people without a country. And then in one generation, they went from laboring slaves to wandering nomads to invading warriors, all in search of a land to call their own, a land promised to their forefathers. And after the land of Canaan has been conquered, which we finished last week, the Lord assigns Joshua the task of dividing it up among the tribes. Every acre is their proper inheritance. Every acre assures them of God's faithfulness and of a greater land to come. The land promised, pictured for Israel, the rich inheritance that every believer has in Christ. It symbolically portrays everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth. It's not just a gift, and it's not just a reward. It is a blessing from God. And that's where we start this morning with the blessing of land. It's an overview of these seven chapters the blessing of land. This chapter begins the third major section of the book of Joshua. The opening chapters of the book narrated the crossing of the Jordan River of Israel into the promised land, Joshua 1 through 4. And then the second part presented the conquest of Canaan, Joshua 5 through 12. And now this third part details the assignment of the land to the tribes in Joshua 13 through 21, though we're only going through chapter 19 today. And so for these people, this is a big deal. God promised that the land would be given to Israel all the way back in Genesis 12. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. And the Lord repeated that promise again and again and again. We find it in Genesis 13, Genesis 17, Exodus 33. Numbers 32, and now we have a promise uh, about the land here in Joshua 13, verse 6. I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel, only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. So at last, their wanderings are over. At last, God is fulfilling his promise. At last, Israel tastes the sweetness of the promised land. They are finally home. Now, for modern readers like us, coming to these seven chapters and working through the allocation of the land, chapter after chapter, it can be daunting and tedious and, quite frankly, boring. After eight chapters of conquest and battles, and clashing swords and falling walls, we've come to dividing up the land. This tribe gets this piece. That tribe gets that piece. It's not nearly as interesting as the conquest. I mean, think about it. Watching war movies tends to be more exciting than participating in land surveys. In fact, two commentators, and this is true, said the only thing these chapters will fight is insomnia. And I actually thought about 
just reading all seven chapters and then saying amen because we'd be out of time. Perhaps that might lack wisdom. Now, the fact that I'm skimming over seven chapters, here's sort of the caveat, does not mean that any part of scripture is unimportant. We believe that every single word is given by the inspiration of God, and it's often in the details that the quality of God's inspiration can be seen. So for today, it's mostly a matter of time. And we are gonna look at a few of the details, but first we're gonna look at the big picture and then we'll look at some unexpected stories sort of hidden in the text. And so before we get that, understand the details are important. Whenever you're really interested in something, the details are important. When you're a Christian and you love God's word, the details are important. And God is a God of detail. And so in chapters 13 through 19, we're told how God gave them land east and west of the Jordan. And it follows then... Uh, detailed account of how the various tribes and families and clans are to settle in the land. Now here's a question for you. This is the inspired word of God and it takes seven chapters to give this detailed account of dividing up the land of Canaan, which is really just one long geography lesson. It gives all this space to who should live where twice as much as the letters to Ephesians and Colossians combined. Why? Why is it so important that we have all this detail? For a very simple reason. To underline the fact that God keeps his promises down to the last detail. Do you believe that? that God is concerned about details, that's what this is teaching us. There isn't one aspect of the promise of God that will ever fail. You could say God is a detail person. If he's concerned about the little details of geography, he's concerned about the little details that keep you up at night. The little details that cause husbands and wives to quarrel. God is concerned about them, all of them. And when we find ourselves in difficult situations and God's not rewarding us in any way or answering us in any way or uh, giving us uh, things that we think he should be giving us, we often think that God's forgotten his promise. And then we come across the stories here of Joshua and Caleb and how God remembers them. And they get a special piece of land, a special inheritance to call their own. I wonder what promises of God you're claiming for yourself. Promises that you may think God's forgotten all about. Maybe it's your children. You brought them up to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, claiming the promises of God on their behalf. And now you're beginning to doubt the truth and the power and the promise that God makes to us and to our children. And yet here is God remembering to keep his promises as he gives the land to the people of God. And I don't know what promises you may be claiming for yourself or even if they've been a long time in coming, maybe 40 some years like we see here. And there's been many a battle in between 
and you don't know how much longer you can wait. Then rest your soul in these chapters because God keeps his promises. These chapters are the evidence of it. That said, let's not forget that for the people in this story, they're not reading this as ancient, boring, detailed history. This is happening to them. This is a welcome and joyous event in the life of the people of the covenant. The joy of the average Israelite in receiving this land is reflected throughout the Old Testament. It echoes in passage after passage. We think these lists and descriptions are terribly dull. But for the Israelite, this material is describing his inheritance. For example, we read in Psalm 16, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The land was given by lots. He said, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And that's the next blessing. If the first key word is land and the blessing of land, the second key word is inheritance. We have the blessing of inheritance. And again, this covers all seven chapters. See, the second half of the book of Joshua, which begins in chapter 13, begins the same way the first half did. With the Lord proclaiming the status of Israel's covenant mediator. In Joshua 1, we learn that Moses has died. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. And that's how the book starts. And now we come to the second half, to Joshua 13, and we read, now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. The standing of the two men at the close of life serves as an indicator that a major event is about to unfold. Moses' death is followed by the story of the conquest. And Joshua's old age is followed by the inheritance of the land. The word inheritance is found over 50 times in these chapters. So it's a really important word. And it tells us the Jews inherited their land. <coughs> they didn't win this land as spoils of war. And they didn't buy the land in a business transaction. And the Lord is the true owner. That's who they're inheriting it from. The Lord says that back in Leviticus 25. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. And so now they're inheriting it from the Lord. And so they call in Eliezer, the high priest, and Joshua, and one representative from each tribe, and they cast lots for the land. And every tribe is represented so there can be no charges of favoritism from any tribe. And in obedience to what Moses said, these uh, people throw themselves on the sovereignty of God and cast lots before the Lord. They want God to decide how much each tribe needs and uh, what land each tribe is to have. And so the rest of the chapters chronicle how the lots fell and how the land's divided. And it includes a ton of details, boundaries and cities and towns 
and features like hills and rivers and springs, even down to the lines drawn in the deserts of shifting sands. However, some of the details are fascinating. There's no inheritance of land for Levi. Joshua 13:33. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Now, they're not getting an inheritance of land because they sinned. We saw that back when we talked about uh, the Gibeonites. But they also were chosen to serve God as the priests and uh, Levites as the priest's assistants. And so they get sort of a special honor. We'll see that in the next uh, couple chapters. But here he's given all the tribes land to live in except for one. And that one tribe is to stand as a message to all of them that their ultimate inheritance is not found in the land, but in the Lord. So let's, uh, let's get into the exciting part. Let's take a look at the allotment of land to the tribes. Remember, two and a half tribes have already been given land east of the Jordan River before the conquest had begun. And we have a list for you. Ah, there it is. Okay, we have list and a map, and we'll be going back and forth. So here's the list. It starts with the inheritance of Gad, Reuben, and half Manasseh. And these are the tribes east of the Jordan. These become the borderline, the border uh, tribes that continually face the idolatry and immorality of the surrounding nations. And eventually these tribes give in to the false gods of those nations and play a major role in leading the northern kingdom of Israel astray. And let's look at the map. Uh, not so great to see. Let me get my pointer. So, chapter 14 says how this is all going to be done, and then in 15 we get to Judah. So here's the three eastern tribes, Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. And this is Judah, look, this whole southern half here. The distribution of land to Judah occupies the entire 15th chapter because Judah is now the most important of all the tribes. Judah is actually the fourth of Jacob's 12 sons, uh, born after Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And so it wouldn't normally be given prominence, but the older brothers all sinned dramatically. I'm not gonna go through all that, but it disqualified them from the blessings of the firstborn. And so Judah is given the right of rule. And according to Jacob's prophecy recorded in Genesis 49, Judah is to give birth to the king, starting with King David and leading eventually to the king of kings, the Lord Jesus. And so then we go to the inheritance for Joseph's tribes, but not Levi. And that is Ephraim right here and what's said as West Manassas. So look, Manassas is East Manassas and West Manassas. I wonder if the city of Manassas has East and West. And the difference is, this is one clan, and this is all the other clans that are in Manassas. And 
Ephraim, chapter 16, and the other half of West Manasseh is chapter 17. And these are the sons of Joseph. And Joseph adopted, I mean, Jacob adopted them. They're Joseph's sons, but Jacob adopts them. He blessed them in Genesis 48. And since the tribe of Levi is not getting any land, these two tribes make up the difference, so there'll still be 12 tribes. They get the land. Manasseh obviously gets more, but Ephraim gets the priority. And uh, that's significant because who comes from the tribe of Ephraim? Joshua. So, who does everybody think is going to be the favored tribe? All Ephraim. Hey, Joshua's making the decisions here, and he's our guy. And Ephraim gets the idea that they should be the first tribe they should be the most important tribe. And so in the book of Judges, twice Ephraim tries to establish a kingship claiming they should get the king uh, because they had Joshua. We had Joshua, we should get the king. Even though Jacob has already prophesied all the way back in Genesis that the king would come from Judah. We're told that most clearly in Psalm 78. It says he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. And this causes massive problems in Israel's history. Ephraim, knowing they're not getting the kingship, and they're not gonna be the most important tribe, essentially becomes the troublemakers of Israel. And so when David is finally made king, he moves the center of worship from Shiloh, established here in chapter 18, which is in Ephraim. Shiloh is right there. And he moves it down here to Jerusalem. So it goes from there to there. Jerusalem's right on the edge of Benjamin and Judah. It's technically within Judah. And so the capital, which belonged to Ephraim, and they thought they were the best, they lose it under David. They lose the center of worship. They lose the most important city. And eventually this leads to the split of the northern kingdom of Israel from the southern kingdom of Judah. This is sort of the root right here in Joshua of why centuries later these kingdoms are going to split. So finally picking up the casting of lots, the second half of chapter 18, we're told who gets the rest of the land. Let's go back to the list. All right. So first up is Benjamin, chapter 18, and then Simeon. Let's go back to the map real quick. Look where Simeon is. And look who they're surrounded by. And there's a message there. Simeon basically has Judah uh, over them. Simeon is one of the older brothers that sinned when they killed the Shechemites. And God punishes uh, them. Um, Back in Genesis 49, Jacob, he blesses them, but he states that Simeon is divided from Levi. And this is how he does it. So Judah 
keeps them separated, but also protects them mostly from their own sin and stupidity. Simeon is not the brightest bulb of the tribes. And um, so they, this is sort of for their own benefit. The Levites will end up right here, Jerusalem to Jericho. And they'll basically, even though they're gonna be given a bunch of cities, we'll see that next week, they spend most of their time in that little area with this giant Judah buffer between them and Simeon. Um, because when Simeon and Levi get together, I mean, some of you have sons, and every now and then, brothers get together, and they get into trouble. And that's exactly what happens here. So now we keep them apart. We don't let them sit next to each other in the minivan. You know, you might have some experience with that. Um, so this is how God does it. Let's go back to the list. We go down and we have Zebulon. And um, they're actually higher up on the list than they should be. Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. So we get all the other tribes get their space. Well, let's go back and look at Dan. Right there. See Dan? That's this part, big coastline there. Dan's the other screw-up brother. Um, Dan gets the coastal region, but in Judges 1, they're driven out of there back into the hill country, and so they go take land that wasn't given to them. And fairly quickly, this coastal region right here, which Dan is supposed to occupy, becomes the center to other people groups who continually fight against Israel. And so all the rest of the tribes get mad at Dan because they don't hold their allotment of the land and because Dan can't keep their land, which angers the other tribes, that Dan, people of Dan become bitter and they set up their own place of worship to rival the one established by God at Shiloh. All because they can't keep their land. So we can look at it as just a map and just as allotment, but there's a zillion stories hidden in the maps and hidden in the lists. And they come to play out over the next hundreds of years, not just through Judges, but through Kings and Chronicles and First and Second Samuel. We keep coming back to, well, this is what should have happened but didn't because, you know, uh, Simeon is stupid and Dan wouldn't hold their land even though it happened hundreds of years earlier. And then our text ends, the very end of chapter 19. These are the inheritances that Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting so they finished dividing the land. And so the land is now distributed, every tribe gets their share, and you can thank me later for not reading all the boring details. And we can turn the map off. However, tucked into all the boring details are shining stories of faithfulness of God's people caught up in the mundane issues of land distribution. But there's also stories of unfaithfulness of God's people that stand as a warning and a challenge to us basically asking us which to choose. You're gonna follow the faithful people or the unfaithful people? And that's good for us because 
For most of life, we live in the ordinary. It's in the mundane details that color and shape our lives. You know, packing lunches and gassing up the car and bandaging bruised knees and buying groceries and heading out to the office. It's in those mundane details that God's presence is known and his promises are proven true. And it's in those mundane details of life that we're called to faithfulness and away from unfaithfulness, as was Israel. So now you have the big picture. The land and the inheritance. That's the kind of the big deal. So let's look at two stories here. There's actually a lot of stories. We're only going to look at two. Of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And first we're going to look at Joshua 17. And the blessing of the faithful. See, there's a problem with the inheritance for the tribe of Manasseh. Back in Numbers 27, the five daughters of uh, Zelephahad, in practice, the son of Heifer, one of the clans of Manasseh that's mentioned here, approached Moses with this serious issue. Their father, Zelephahad, has no sons only daughters. So the daughters appealed to Moses that their family name should not be removed, but they should be given an inheritance among their father's brothers. And so Moses takes the request to the Lord, and he instructs Moses to grant their request and establish laws of inheritance that enable the transfer of a land or any inheritance to a man's daughters if he had no sons so that the daughters would receive the land in the name of their father. So now in our present passage in Joshua 17, the daughters approach the leaders of Israel to stake their claim, starting in 17.3. Now Zelephahad, the son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mela, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terzah. They approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Verse 6, The daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. You have to understand how unusual this is. There can be no doubt that the narrative is shaped to highlight women being included along with men, which wouldn't normally have happened, as those who are to possess the promised land. However, it's still women within a patriarchal system, they make their request, holding Israel to what God has commanded, but they make sure they're heard. So in essence, these women are reminding the male leadership of Israel that God is committed to inheritance rights for women. And for this, they're remembered as models of the kind of faith that takes the land. And they should be remembered. These daughters claim what God has promised. And when Manasseh receives its lands, the daughters persist in faith, anticipating their claim would be honored, And although the inheritance usually went only to sons, the daughters receive an inheritance in Israel equal to the other clans in Manasseh. 
Now, the book of Joshua has repeatedly shown that God honors the faith of those whom others might consider outsiders. We saw that with Rahab. We saw it with the Gideonites. And now we see it with these daughters. This should speak to women of faith in all ages, called by God to many tasks. And often these tasks are deemed by uh, society, especially today, as unsuitable or unseemly. And often, like these daughters, they're outside the halls of power trying to be heard. And the testimony of these women is that they believe what God said and they acted on it. And the good news of their story is that what God promised them was honored. Their voice was heard and Israel faithfully responded. And we know this because Israel records the story of these women, these five daughters, not once, but three times. Joshua 17 is the third time it's written down. These women wanted their father's name remembered, but may their names be remembered as an encouragement to all who struggle to have their voices heard in the midst of God's people. And may God's people have a listening ear and a responsive heart. God grants land to all Israel, and now this includes Mela, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza, who are women of faith whose names should be remembered. But then Joshua draws a pointed contrast between these faithful daughters and some unfaithful sons of Joseph. And so we move further down in the chapter to Joshua 17, 14 to 18, and we have the concerns of the unfaithful. The concerns of the unfaithful. And I've already said the Ephraimites become the troublemakers of Israel. And here we go again. And this passage reads, Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you're a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Raphaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people, you got to hear the sarcasm in here. The people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Shean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its furthest borders, for you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. So the complaint is made that they're counted as two tribes, but they only draw one lot. And it seems that they're accusing Joshua of depriving them of land that should be theirs. And his reply is masterful. If you're such a great and numerous people, go out and drive out the enemy out of the land that's been allotted but not yet taken. And the implication is they've been given more than enough uh, land, but they have to make it their own. The land's not insufficient, but their faith is. There's a great deal of forested land in the hill country to be won and presumably cleared, and it would be a demanding project. And so their response then is to quibble about the unsuitability of their allocation. And he says, this will confine us to the plains. 
where the Canaanites still dwell. Should there still be Canaanites in the plains? No, but there are. And he says, and they have chariots of iron. And Joshua doesn't budge. He says, if you're so numerous, then subdue the land and drive out the Canaanites. It's though he's asking them, have you learned nothing from this whole experience of the conquest? Provision is made for them to have more land, but they have to go take it. Now think about this. Every single one of us, every believer, knows fear from time to time. We can be weak, shrink back, we can complain about our circumstances, we can even complain about God. There are so many ways we're like the people of Joseph in this passage. And like them, these times of unfaithfulness need not exclude us from God and his people. Repentance can be undertaken, forgiveness is available as is kindness and grace, and one instance of fear or failure doesn't equal a lifetime of fear and failure. So we have a story of faithfulness, five daughters. And we have a story of unfaithfulness. We're not given a number, but it's the sons of Ephraim and Manasseh. And I want to close today with the story of Caleb. I didn't want to overlook it. I actually had to cut several parts out because it's so long. Um, but Caleb is one magnificent old man. I love the story of Caleb. We're not actually told very much about Caleb. Joshua would have been overlooked a whole lot more. We're not a book there that bears his name. But Caleb doesn't have a book. He's only mentioned in a dozen places in the Bible, three of them here in Joshua. And although we could easily forget him, Caleb's not forgotten by God or by his people. He has fought side by side with Joshua for the many long years of the conquest. And the fighting's nearly over and it's time to divide the land. And Caleb is given a portion of the land that was promised to him decades earlier. And so God has honored him and the people honor him as well. The first time we meet Caleb is in Numbers 13, the chapter that tells of the 12 spies sent out to search out the land. And when he spied out the land, that was 40 years earlier, he got the special mission to scout out the city of Hebron. Well, 45 years later, he's given Hebron as his inheritance. And in Numbers, Caleb is cited as a representative of the tribe of Judah. Hebron's a really important city. If you remember, that's where Abraham and Sarah are buried. Most of the patriarchs are buried. They bring Joseph's bones back to bury him there. Um, and so this is a big deal. It's as close to a sacred city as Israel has. And it's being given to Caleb. And he's a representative of the tribe of Judah. But here in Joshua 14... He's described as being the son of a Kenizzite. Joshua 14, verse 14. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. The Kenizzites were not Jews. That's an Edomite tribe. So Caleb is a foreigner, at least his father was. And we don't know how he came to be in Egypt with the Jewish people. Perhaps he was thrown in with them during their years of slavery or their ancestors went down with the Jews originally. At any rate, at some point, Caleb's father identifies with the Jews. Some people think he was adopted by a Jewish family. It's not real clear how he got there. But Caleb then identifies with them and is loyal to that faith. In fact, his chief 
characteristic here is faithfulness. And although he's a foreigner, he regards himself as a faithful follower of God, and he follows him to the very end of his life. And he's still doing it. And this is remarkable. Caleb has served God for the last 45 years, and he's now 85 years old. And he's not finished. He fought next to Joshua through the seven long years of the conquest. I know we went through the conquest in six weeks, but it took seven years. And now he wants to end this distinguished career with this victory over the land that he scouted out four and a half decades earlier. And so he does it. And you remember why the people uh, refused to take the promised land the first time? Because the other 10 spies said uh, the enemy was too big. Numbers 13, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So the Anak are the big people. That's who they're scared of. And where do the Anak live? Hebron. And Caleb's telling them, you wouldn't let me drive them out when I was 40. Let me do it at 85. Look what he says, Joshua 14, 11. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength is now as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. And guess who still lives there? That's right, the Anak. Hebron is still the city of giants. So Caleb says, Joshua 14, 12, Give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there, that's plural, with great fortified cities, it may be that the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out just as the Lord said. How big is your God? Caleb has a big God. And Caleb's big God does mighty things for Caleb. And this is the reason for Caleb's great spiritual strength. He gave himself to the Lord wholeheartedly. That comes out forcefully in Joshua 14, 9. Moses swore on that day, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. Holy followed means with all your heart. It's the idea embedded in what Jesus called the first and greatest commandment. Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Nothing could be more basic to being a follower of Christ. And yet, how many of us do this? or even worry about not doing it. And yet this is what characterizes Caleb. What does it mean for him to wholly follow God? A very wooden translation of the Hebrew yields the phrase, I was full after. To wholly follow God means to be full after the Lord. And Caleb's loyalty is an expression of his faith. To say that he wholly followed the Lord became a way to express his trust in God's word and to rely on the promises of God. And it's this abiding faith in God that became the reason he receives his inheritance, a portion of the land that pointed to a greater place, a greater land, an eternal land, the new heavens and the new earth. The Dutch scholar Anthony Hokema once wrote, one gets the impression from certain hymns that believers will spend eternity in some ethereal heaven somewhere off in space. In reality, our allotment of a new heaven and a new earth is not some dirtless, fleshless entity, but it is real, substantive, and actual land. 
The times and circumstances of Caleb's experience are quite different from ours. But the heart of the text, the essence of its message, hasn't changed. Caleb receives God's gracious inheritance because he trusted the Lord. And he demonstrated the reality of his faith by remaining loyal to God. All believers, every spiritual son and daughter of Abraham, will inherit the land. Even now we have an inheritance. We don't have to wait for Christ's return to be assured of it. This land, promise, points us to Christ, the one in whom all God's promises are confirmed and through whom they're realized. In Christ we have obtained our inheritance, Ephesians 1.11. The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, Colossians 1.12. And Jesus came to be the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised internal uh, inheritance, Hebrews 9.15. Which begs the question, have you wholly followed the Lord? And if you answer that question honestly, you'll have to admit that you haven't. All of us at one point or another have failed to believe God's promises. We've let fear dominate our lives rather than the courage to believe his word. And for this reason, you and I need someone else from the tribe of Judah, a man greater than Caleb, who believed God in the face of death, a man willing to stand alone outside the gate at that place called Calvary, a man willing to suffer and endure the cross for the joy that was set before him, the promise of an inheritance given to him, an inheritance of a people. And there is a man greater than Caleb, and his name is Jesus. And because he wholly followed the Lord, because he perfectly obeyed the Father, we can receive forgiveness for our sins through faith in him. For every place you failed, Jesus has succeeded. For every sin you've committed, Christ has earned for you perfect righteousness. D.L. Moody put it this way, take courage, we walk in the wilderness today and in the promised land tomorrow. And so Christ calls you to come, to commit your eternal soul into his hands that you might be saved. Do you have the assurance of a promised land awaiting you in the future? Do you have the hope of heaven? Is Christ your inheritance? Those are important questions. Take time to answer them well. You need to pray. You should do that now. After a little bit, I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us, your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there are times when we fail to wholly follow you, when we fail to trust the promises of God. And so we thank you for the one who wholly followed you, who suffered and died on our behalf. He is our inheritance, and we are as people his inheritance. Help us to find, find strong encouragement in the one in whom we have obtained our inheritance, and teach us to worship him as the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Give us the abiding faith of Caleb and Joshua and Mela, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza and help us to seek fully after you this year. As we live with Joshua, as we learn to be strong and courageous, not to be frightened and not to be dismayed, for the Lord our God is with us wherever we may go. 
Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word, and through the book of Joshua, draw us ever closer to the one who is the greater Caleb, the greater Joshua, your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.